You are joining Dr. Gary Crow presents audio tidbits for opinion, learning, and just for fun. Gary is a retired human services administrator, author, trainer, and speaker who is joined by the podcasting team to bring you perspectives, tips, and insights about people doing their best to do their best for others. The team mixes their tidbits with music from Kevin McLeod and special segments just for fun. Please relax and enjoy. Welcome Tidbitters. The podcasting team has some thoughts and advice for the writers and bloggers among you. Since they are all podcasting from their homes, you will notice that not all audio is equal. The team is social distancing and wants to assure you that they are still here for you. They know how difficult writing can be and how much that difficulty is amplified when trying to blog. I think you will find their tips and notions about writing and blogging helpful as you pursue your passion. Please enjoy. If you have any feedback for the team, tweet Gary at drgarycrow or send a note to Gary at garycrow.net. Gary will make sure the team gets your comments. An old Chinese proverb says, talk doesn't cook rice. I suspect it is equally true quoting old Chinese proverbs doesn't cook much rice either. As I consider strategies for initiating this effort, along with noting activities that do not cook rice, I'm thinking also noting those that do not lead to a successful blog would be helpful. Once I know all of the points, what's left are on the the list. Here we go with the don't list for blogging. 1. Don't sit and stare. Doing most anything else is an improvement over just gazing into empty space. Of course, I claim to be intensely thinking, and it may be true, at least a little. Even so, writing is key although I can think without seriously thinking, think without writing, and write without thinking, to write without writing is pretty much impossible or at least beyond my scope for sure. 2. I don't need another cup of coffee. I know it would feel good to stretch and stroll out at the coffee pot and back. A nice cup of hot coffee might even perk me up. I could use the time to consider more fully what I want to say and the jolt of caffeine might stimulate a new insight or something. No, no coffee, no stroll into the other room, no more avoiding getting down to the business at hand. 3. I don't have any more excuses. I'm far enough into it to get down to it if I am up to it. Okay, I'm getting around to it and know it's time to either do it or screw it. The deal goes like this. I'll never make a post if all I do is boast about the blog I'm planning to write. It's indeed a little crazy but either I'm lazy or afraid of being absolutely trite. That's a pretty pathetic verse, and sure it can get worse but I don't feel even a little contrite. My blog is underweight and I have a post for today so that I can get that coffee, and stare with no further fear of being impolite. Starting a post with a quotation or some other wise saying seems to help break the ice or since I am into cliches, it more likely is merely priming the creativity pump. Either way, a quote from Sylvia Plath struck me as useful for my present purpose, and by the way, everything in life is writable about if you have the outgoing guts to do it, and the imagination to improvise. The worst enemy to creativity is self-doubt. 
before using the quote. I thought the refresher on Sylvia Plath might add to the pump priming so in came Wikipedia to fill the need. Just search for Ms. Plath to find her life story or at least the Wikipedia version of her life story. The story is too intense and far too sad to tell here but think Fulbright scholarship, Pulitzer Prize for poetry, novelist, poet, controversial writer, and getting her own stamp from the post office next year. If she said it, and she did, it's true enough for me, dot everything in life is writable about. This certainly opens a world of possibilities and opportunities. Now all that is needed are, dot the outgoing guts to do it, and the imagination to improvise. There you go, guts and imagination. That does reduce the challenge to rather simple terms. It surely helps to be brilliant and gifted as a serendipitous bonus but guts and imagination may be doable for most of us even if Pulitzer Prizes and their own stamp are not in the cards. We need only keep self-doubt arrested, and far off our creative path. Writing for the ages like Shakespeare or being as clever as Ogden Nash would pretty well guarantee the conversion of your writing to cash. But if guts and imagination are mostly what you're about, remember the words of Sylvia Plath as you keep all self-doubt out. Don't you get a little suspicious when a reporter attributes a fact or other information to a reliable source or to an official who didn't want his or her name used? It's kind of the same thing when an author uses some insight or clever saying, and then attributes it to author unknown or perhaps anonymous. I suppose giving credit to B. Franklin or A. Einstein would be no more than a misattribution, albeit intentional, but still, it does seem a tad unethical, don't you think? Let me handle my ethical dilemma by suggesting someone really famous probably said this first, but if so, I cannot figure who he or she might have been. Usually reliable sources say it was most likely the famous anonymous. At any rate, he or she said, don't expect anything original from an echo. Confession time. Okay, I was planning to start with this little quip from whomever thought to say it first and piggyback my way to a blog post, hoping you would notice I was merely being an echo trying to disguise my voice so you would think I was actually saying something original. My idea was to also work and sometimes imagination pounces, mostly it sleeps soundly in the corner, purring. The connection was to argue being an echo isn't all that bad while one is waiting for imagination to pounce. Imagination or perhaps my elusive muse itself is but a big cat, just waiting to pounce when I least expect it. With a respectful nod to that ethics issue we already covered, I acknowledge Terry Gilliman's who created the metaphoric illusion to our purring, pouncing imaginations. Such an alive, hopeful image. My muse may seem to be gone but may actually just be in the shadow, waiting to pounce. How cool would that be? Way cool downright stellar. Since I did not know about Ms. Gilliman's, I first checked Wikipedia with no luck. Sure, I then googled her and there she was. Along with creating great metaphors as if she meant them specifically for me, she created QuoteGarden.com, one of my favorite places on the net and it will quickly become one of yours, if it isn't already. That brings us to whatever the point of this is, if there is a point. Trying to pass off an echo as originality is hardly worth the effort, and does raise serious ethical issues. 
Even so, a little echo now and then can be interesting and perhaps entertaining if not overdone. What's more, responsibly echoing can be a convenient way to pass the time while waiting for your imagination to kick in and your muse to pounce. I echo what others say, while waiting for my muse to pounce. Throughout this interminable day, my attention does not jiggle or jounce. I listen for the slightest indication of the purring I'm hoping to hear. It's with anxious anticipation I feel my elusive muse is near. Pounce soon big cat, you've been in the shadow far too long. Quit acting like a rat, get out here where you belong. I am still on the kick about getting my muse to return. It occurs to me it may be analogous to exercising. My idea is that it is like when runners talk about getting in the zone. They get so comfortable with running they are able to shift mind states, with the zone becoming their nivane. I suspect the zone is not a place one arrives quickly or easily. Since I have never personally been there, I can only speculate. But it seems likely one would have to run and run and then run some more for a very long time before being in the zone becomes a reality. Here is my idea. Everything up to stepping into the zone is exercising. Everything after that is being a runner. Sure, there are probably a gifted few who bypass the exercise part and step into the zone without missing a step. Here I am limiting my idea to regular mortals who cannot bypass the exercise part. The analogy for writers then says write and write and then write some more for a very long time before being in the zone, communing with one's muse becomes a reality. This is more familiar territory. I have personally been there and hope to return soon. Yes, the gifted few probably slip into the zone without all that hideous exercise but for us mere mortals, it seems there is no shortcut to Anivane. I just hate it when I have to do this, but I have no good alternative but to quote the famous anonymous twice in the same post. I fear you may think I am making this stuff up. I should be so smart. At any rate, I commit to be fit. I will write and write and then write some more for a very long time. It's definitely true, the only exercise some people get is jumping to conclusions, running down their friends, sidestepping responsibility, and pushing their luck. I commit to conscientiously refrain from all such superfluous jumping, running, sidestepping, and pushing, understanding they serve no legitimate purpose. Sometimes I write better, sometimes I write worse. Sometimes I write prose, sometimes I write worse. Sometimes I write more, sometimes I write less. I commit to be fit, I exercise for success. I was just hanging out, priming the creative pump a while back. That's what I like to call it when I am kicking back and relaxing with a good book. I found a rather compelling detective story titled Saratoga Headhunter by Stephen Binns, 1985. I will leave the story for your discovery, but hidden in there toward the middle of the book, I chanced on a shiny nugget, quite unexpected but thought-stopping. The private I come milkman was characterized as an emotional joiner. The idea is quite unlike being sensitive or empathetic. Think of a magnet. If emotions in others represent one pole, our protagonist represents the other. You cry, he cries. I'm supposing it happens with other emotions as well. You smile, he smiles. You get upset, he is upset. You get the idea, an emotional joiner. 
My first thought was having Bing's Hero as the primary consumer of my blog would be totally terrific. He would pick up on the emotional subtleties and go with the flow, so to speak. Sure, there was a second thought. He would have no opinion about the post. He would just get pulled along, wherever or however it went. He would be incapable of critical feedback. What would be the point of that? A reader without the capacity for criticism may like the post, but cannot appreciate it. There needs to be an independent potential for like and don't like. A writer needs a critic. As is my bent, I next went hunting for a wise saying or pithy quip about critics and criticism and came across this barb. I am returning this otherwise good typing paper to you because someone has printed gibberish all over it and put your name at the top. It is attributed to an unnamed English professor at Ohio University, which happens to be my alma mater. Yes, that is an interesting coincidence, but not all that remarkable. Here is what is remarkable. I think I may know the name of the unknown professor. I will lay odds her name is Miss Gray. If so, she is the same English professor who told me I was too illiterate to be a college student way back there in my impressionable undergraduate days. What do you think? Does it sound like there may be one in the same visitor from a bad dream? Yes, I think they are indeed the same person. It's either that or OU has a serious problem with gratuitously cruel English professors. I continue to think only writing for social joiners would be a fairly meaningless activity, but I'm bummed to be reminded of Miss Gray. I said I wanted criticism, and it still seems important, but it can sometimes transition into brutality. Perhaps there is a midpoint where social joining and legitimate criticism of lab. I think that is where writer and reader converge to create literature, the world where they are both engaged and fully participating. It is kind of a home place where we can both be surprised. I write as carefully and as clearly as I can. You sincerely try to understand. We may never be the other's fan. But we always give each other a hand. As an impressionable undergraduate at Ohio University, there were dozens if not hundreds of potential areas of study for me to sample. Here is where I add something like, they ranged from architecture to zoology, or even better, from A to Z. Let me also add a little personal data by noting I dipped into all that intellectual plenty and pulled the philosopher card. Doctor, lawyer, merchant, chief and with virtually no hesitation, I picked philosopher. A very natural and logical choice don't you think? There I was, 18 years old and speculating about how many angels can fit on the head of a pin. Okay, that's much more not true than true. I was an 18-year-old college student. What do you think I was doing? Do you have a notion, a picture in your mind's eye? I was mostly doing that but I did to philosophy some too. I recall telling old people, everyone too old to be an 18-year-old college student, I was majoring in philosophy. I got reactions from, that's nice, to, why? The, why? Reactions eventually got me to thinking, but that is a story for another post, since I was not thinking much one way or the other right then. I was practicing being a philosopher. Thinking could wait. 
with my friends, mostly other 18-year-old college students. I tried not to mention anything about majors or philosophy. If I slipped, they usually didn't say anything. They mostly snickered and nodded their heads. Eye-rolling was not big at OU back then. They did tend to perk up some when I mentioned being into logic. All men are mortal. Plato was a man. Therefore, would you have time to help me with? It was like suddenly being labeled as a geek of sorts, albeit a potentially useful geek. It tended to interfere with my plans for the rest of the time when I was not practicing being a philosopher. On those rare occasions when I did attempt conversation incorporating a few of the more esoteric philosophical concepts and notions, boring seemed to characterize how I and my contributions to the discussion were perceived. I think that precipitated a lifelong fear of being boring and generally uninteresting. It's like that one youthful experience eventuating in an acknowledged trauma and periodic immobility. Okay, it wasn't actually that bad, but it certainly was the pits. Being boring was to be avoided whenever possible. Now fast forward. I recently came across this from John Updike, one out of 312 Americans is a bore. And a healthy male adult bore consumes each year one and a half times his own weight in other people's patients. What do you think the chances are of an 18-year-old college student who is rarely but still occasionally boring progressing for a few decades without becoming one of Updike's healthy male adult bores? Does slim to none ring any bells? It gets worse. Someone who was probably so boring no one remembers his name pointed out. The worst thing about a bore is not that he won't stop talking, but that he won't let you stop listening. We have come full circle. An 18-year-old college student naively pulls the philosopher card and inadvertently sets himself on a path to becoming a healthy male adult bore people duck away from to escape the storm of esoteric gibberish. Fortunately, this post has been mostly speculative, at least I hope it has, especially the part about people ducking away. Even so, there may be a lesson in there about social reciprocity and the ever-present risk of exposing the bore in all of us. Let me leave the analysis of that possibility to those who also pulled the philosopher card in their youth. For now, let this suffice. You have some very wise advice. Your analysis is compelling. First think once and then think twice. Your point may not survive the telling. Now. Immediately without further delay. This is the moment of truth, the instant when I either do it or give up all pretension. There you have it in 25 words or less. Two less but who's counting? I'm sending a thumbs up to Ava Young who said, to think too long about doing a thing often becomes its undoing. I know I'm probably being redundant, but I've got to add that Olin Miller makes the same point, if you want to make an easy job seem mighty hard, just keep putting off doing it. Putting off an easy thing makes it hard. Putting off a hard thing makes it impossible. This follow-up from George Claude Lorimer was just too right to resist. As you likely guessed, I've been hanging out at Quotagarden.com again. The famous anonymous saw through it though. The road to success is dotted with many tempting parking places, and the quote garden always tempts me. My poking around may not have pushed me back to my keyboard and the next post from my blog, but there was definitely a plethora of very clever tidbits for intellectual munching. For instance, consider this. Only Robinson Crusoe had everything done by Friday. 
the author is unknown, and that is just as well since it means absolutely nothing. Even so, it is clever enough I wish I had said at first. And then there are those examples of silliness from people who for sure should have known better. It's not that I'm so smart, it's just that I stay with problems longer. Not so smart? Get serious Professor Einstein. At least you are not hanging out there by yourself in silliness land. Try this from Thomas Foxwell Buxton. With ordinary talent and extraordinary perseverance, all things are attainable. Does LeBron James, for example, cause you any second thoughts about sticking to your assertion? At least William Feather was somewhat more equivocal when making pretty much the same point, success seems to be largely a matter of hanging on after others have let go. Of course, Perseus put it most succinctly, he conquers who endures. Can I have one more from the clever category? Pretty please? Big shots are only little shots who keep shooting. I promise to take Christopher Marley's clever words to heart and keep shooting. I know I haven't yet gotten around to any serious blogging and I'm probably shortchanging you with this post. Next time I am definitely shooting for a real post, something more substantial than merely springboarding off the clever work of others. I procrastinate, knowing it is hard to start. I procrastinate, contemplating what wisdom to impart. I procrastinate, hoping to create great art. I procrastinate, unaware as you silently depart. Tediously prolonged writing is, well, tedious. It quickly leads to weariness and an inability to give a fig about what comes next. Bluntly, it prompts the sincere hope nothing comes next. Moreover, it dissipates any remaining interest in whatever preceded it. Point, write more if you must. Include everything you know. In this truth to trust. I left a few paragraphs ago. An absence of boldness may be no more than mere diffidence rooted in a lack of self-confidence and minimal faith in one's creative capacity. It may stem from shyness and discomfort with self-assertion. It rarely is but also may be a simple matter of personal preference and a conscious desire to call no unnecessary attention to oneself. For writers, however, it more typically reflects a fear of rejection, ridicule, and rude gestures. Whatever the source, successful writers enthusiastically emulate Star Trek's Captain Jean-Luc Picard as they boldly go where no one has gone before. Point, you may be reticent and restrained. Taciturnity is a perfect fit. Such constraint must not be maintained. Loosen up and get over it. Great writers are concise and come quickly to the point. They write clearly and distinctly, boldly putting forth their views and opinions. They are neither tedious nor timid. Just as they do not hold back for fear of rejection or ridicule, they do not trample on the goodwill and sensitivities of their audience. They refrain from the unnecessary and unwarranted, avoid the gratuitous and hurtful, refuse the banal and trite. They cherish their unique voice and obsessively censor everything it says. Point, write each word with conscious intention. Getting it right is an enviable knack. Each word deserves careful attention. Once published, you can't take it back. I sat down to write this post. As you can guess, sitting did not automatically trigger great insight or imagination. Sitting is certainly not a prerequisite for writing as most any teenager knows. 
I think were we to conduct a scientific survey, we would discover less than 4 in 37 people under 20 years old ever sit when writing unless required to do so in school or other similarly controlling environment. This may be an overly optimistic estimate if texting is considered to be writing. I asked a conveniently available teen about texting and learned little about the habits of texters but was assured the Guinness record is not held by a teenager. Rather it is held by an adult, Deepak Sharma, who is definitely old enough to know better. Mr. Sharma averaged over 6,000 texts a day for a month. Does get a life seem to fit here? This may not still be the record but if not, I really don't want to know. Since we are just chatting while I wait for an inspiration, there is also a fast texting record. Melissa Thompson of Salford, England, according to the same conveniently available teen, texted this test message in 25.94 seconds. The razor-toothed piranhas of the generous Aresamus and Pyocentrus are the most ferocious freshwater fish in the world. The test message continues but you get the idea. She texts really really fast. Is there anything to conclude from these two records, D. Park for prolific texting and Melissa for speed texting that we might want to file away for further thought? Actually, I doubt it but let me suggest this only as a possibility. As with texting, how much and how fast have little bearing on how well when sitting down to write a post. Readers are unlikely to care much about how many words I write and even less about how quickly I write them. At least speed and quantity are not high on the quality criteria list. That prompts me to wonder if there may not be an acceptable quantity versus speed range for most things in our lives. Perhaps there is too much and not enough, too fast and too slow, with good enough in between. We are inundated with advice and demands to do better, to strive for perfection, to reach farther, and to generally exceed whatever we are currently doing. What if for most things there is a good enough area for each of us where we can relax, feel comfortable, be satisfied with ourselves and our performance, and simply decide not to put any more effort, energy, or emotion into it? We can call all those activities the good enough stuff and where we keep them our GS box. The more we put into our GS box, the more time, opportunity, and emotional energy we have for a few, very few, activities, we're getting it right the first time, on time, every time is important, actually matters to us, and will still matter a month from now, a year from now, since it truly does matter. Let's call this our, matters to me stuff, and our special place to keep it our MTM box. This is a tiny box we can keep in our pocket, so we always have it with us. It holds our personal priorities, those activities we sincerely value. It's where we keep our valuables for frequent examination and action. I admit to being tempted to expand on this, but will follow my own advice. That's enough for this sit. I have two boxes labeled GS and MTM. I am particular about what goes into them. MTM is reserved for my very best. GS is where I toss the rest. You are unlikely to care that I am in a quest for my missing muse. I am only pointing this out because I have not yet come up with anything especially interesting to write about and the prospects are not looking good. Even so, this might get more interesting. Trying to write without the support of my muse's tongue. I miss her a lot and hope she returns soon. My grandson pointed out that Charles Osborne had hiccups for six years. I only mentioned this to remind us both that writing this post could get far worse.
I could be trying the keyboard while her company. Do you have that picture? Yeah, it could be much worse. Double E. C. Fields once said, Horse sense is the thing of horses which keeps it from betting on people. That may seem like a complete non sequitur, but for this, I've made a little bit on me to complete this post, and you're taking a small flyer yourself by reading it. But what if Fields was right? Let's not go there. Spent too much time with that thought and it's not much of a leap to focus in on which end of the horse and our relationship to it. With that, it seems I best put that old horse in the barn and call this a post. If you want a stable partner with no risk of remorse, get a horse. Your faithful equine friend will never ask you to divorce, get a horse. If your hiccups won't stop and your muses take and fly, get a horse. You can bunk with your stable partner never to ride, get a horse. Even if I have been putting off blogging, at least I discovered cumptation. That is definitely not one of my walking around words. I ran across it in the dictionary. You're right. Checking the dictionary was just one more thing to do instead of getting around to blogging. Yep, I was shilly-shallying which combined with procrastinating suggests possible, nay likely dilatoriness, along with way too much time perusing the dictionary. As you may or may not know, my muse abandoned me a while ago and I am on a quest to get her back. She is nowhere to be found today. She has popped in from time to time, but has just not returned on a permanent basis. I am pretty well convinced that she will only pop back in if I get past telling myself it is nothing but a temporary case of writer's block. My message to me goes like this, don't worry about it. You're just experiencing writer's block. Keep busy and don't obsess over it. If you relax and go with the flow, whatever that means, your muse will return and then you will find writing easy, and nearly automatic. Talk about excuses. How do you rate the one? I put it right up there with notions like everything will work out if only you have faith and are patient. Faith is more than important. It is essential. A large measure of patience is right up there on the must-have scale as well. Even so, it takes a very large dose of hard work along with perseverance and a few other associated personal traits before it's time to talk about things working out. It may be time to bring out a couple of those old sores we grew up on but now seem too trite to mention. For example, it is more than happenstance do comes before done in the dictionary, or someday is not a day of the week. I could also give a nod to George Claude Lorimer who said, putting off an easy thing makes it hard. Putting off a hard thing makes it impossible. There are a hundred excuses for not getting started, and a hundred and one for not getting done. When listing the reasons motivation departed, put trifling alone in row number one. I am in search of my elusive muse and have been looking for her high and low. But stop. There is a slight tickle at the edge of my mind. A thought, a possible insight is trying to catch my attention. I hear the gentle voice. The words are hard to understand but are becoming clearer. 
I think I hear but cannot quite assimilate the message with my existing thoughts and perceptions. The included truth cannot be true. The voice assures me as it increases in firmness and volume, it is indeed true. Alas, I must accept the reality, I'm reduced to a single option. My muse never left. She has been there all along. She has stayed close at hand, as near as a whisper. It was not she who abandoned me. Rather it was I who turned a deaf ear to her. It was I who refused to listen or more correctly, refused to credit her for her efforts on my behalf. She struggles with me for the words. She is alongside as I ponder what to say. She is helping as I write and then rewrite. She has been there each step along the way. Wow, I do not think sharing the details is appropriate, but let me assure you being chastised by your muse is no picnic, no walk in the park, no stroll on a summer evening. As tough as it is, I must now stop looking elsewhere for causes and cures. My muse has been holding up her side of the writing equation. It is time for me to now accept full responsibility for holding up mine. No more whining about my missing muse. It is time to simply say, what you get today is the best I can do today. It will have to do. Hmm. Wonder to what else that may apply beyond blogging? What should be the focus of a blog? I suppose a poll might be appropriate, but you need to know what questions to ask before you can make a poll, and then there is the tricky issue of whether anyone would be interested enough to respond to the poll. Another possibility is to just start free associating, which appears to be the technique of choice for many bloggers. For me, the most interesting aspect of the question relates to a more basic curiosity. What are blogs and is there actually any point to them? Based on a quick look at a hundred blogs, the true nature of the medium is certainly not obvious to me. I'm reminded of way back there when CB radios were the big thing. Of course, a few folks did talk with each other about things they really wanted to discuss but for the most part, the CB world divided into talkers and listeners. Hours were spent by talkers trying to find someone, anyone, who would come back and at least give the impression of listening. Once the connection was established, the motor mouth would talk. The listener was only required to respond enough to let the talker know someone was still listening. For the best talkers, even that little bit of feedback was not necessary. A blog is sort of like CB radio for talkers, and whether anyone is listening doesn't seem to matter much. Blogs are also a bit like personal diaries. It used to be that your diary was a very private thing, complete with lock and key. You could enter your most secret thoughts or wonderings and then lock them away. Even if someone might be interested in what you wrote, sharing it was a very big no, no. Maybe Facebook and reality TV have added to making sharing a diary with everyone the cool thing to do. Blogs have become but another way to do just that. At a minimum, some blogs can definitely leave me thinking, I most assuredly didn't need to know that. On the bright side, many blogs are very interesting and a few are downright fascinating. A variety of content and writing styles are enough to satisfy all but the seriously curiosity challenged and I have seen a couple of blogs that might even get a reaction from people who aren't interested in anything. My survey has brought me to the conclusion that blogs aren't anything in particular. Rather, they are the latest iteration of a recurring phenomenon. Technology starts out being used by and available only to the elite. It then gradually is adopted by more and more people and becomes part of the popular culture. 
Radio evolved to CB radio and now has further evolved to cell phones and mini movies that can be recorded and instantly transmitted. You can be in Ohio and watch your grandchild smile in Texas. Very cool don't you think? TV has evolved to reality TV and call now to vote for your favorite new singer. TV has and is becoming interactive. The internet started out only for the intellectually elite and has evolved to shopping, playing games, and who knows what is to come. For now, we have blogs. Anyone with a computer and a tad of knowledge can post his or her diary, opinion, idea, picture, or profound insight for all to see and appreciate or hate or ignore and if the spirit moves, they can even comment and do some blogging of their own on Instagram or YouTube. Perhaps there need not be a point to it. Thanks for joining us for Dr. Gary Crow Presents Audio Tidbits. To get in touch, email Gary at GaryCrow.net. Visit www.GaryCrow.net for more tidbits and ways to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. We'll talk again soon. Music by Kevin McLeod.